As most of you know, we have uh, been in a series in the book of Mark, not a verse-by-verse series, but more of a survey-type series, and uh, we're going to get through uh, pretty much the whole book um, in the next couple weeks, and uh, I'm going to... I'm going to uh, skip a chapter because on Easter Sunday, we gotta, we got to get to the resurrection, and then we can go back and finish, right? Don't you think that would be appropriate? Yes. And so uh, that's, that's uh, how we'll handle it, but we will get there. Um, our our uh, sermon series through the book of Mark, we, we've called it the Servant King, and how Jesus is servant, but yet he's king that he shows an incredible amount of authority, but yet he shows also an incredible amount of compassion. And how sometimes those two things don't go together very well. Sometimes people who have authority don't have compassion, and sometimes people who have a lot of compassion don't have a lot of authority. But as we've worked our way through the book of Mark, those two themes and actually those two words come up Quite frequently, the word authority and the word compassion were the idea of compassion or the idea of authority. And so he is the servant king. And uh, today, I'm going to be looking at Mark chapter 7 and Mark chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. It'll be on the screen in a second. But um, we're talking today about the servant brings sight. The servant brings sight, meaning this kind of sight. I read a story this week about a lady. It actually happened uh, in Ontario. But I, I read this story about this lady who was 50 years old, and she was born blind, had never seen in her entire life. And um, she had this operation when she was 50, and uh, it was this miraculous technique. And I don't know, all the, I can't remember all the details, but the end of the story was is that her sight was fully restored. And when they lifted the patches off of her eyes, she began to weep with joy and just thrilled with happiness because she was seeing the world for the first time, seeing her family for the first time, seeing everything for the first time. Could you imagine? What was neat or what was sort of, that was the neat part, but what was the sad part of the story was that she didn't know that this surgical technique had been uh, developed to treat her condition, and her sight could have been restored 20 years ago. And she thought nothing could be done, and so she lived with her blindness for an extra 20 years uh, that she didn't have to. And uh, in this section, I, I mention that story because in this section, the big picture is this. Jesus is dealing with spiritual blindness. He's dealing with things that people should see, or you think we should see, but yet they don't. Now, we're hard on the Pharisees, you know, calling them blind, but in this, in this uh, chunk that we're going to look at today, not only the enemies of Jesus were blind, but actually so were his closest friends. So were his closest followers, the disciples. And so uh, uh, we're, that's what we're going to uh, have a look at today. Mark 7, um, and today, by the way, what I, I'm going to try to do is actually read as much of the scripture as I possibly can, all right? So are you with me? Because I, I don't, I want you to obviously hear my words, but I want you to see the words that Mark wrote and, and, and understand these stories. So we're going to be reading a bit of scripture today. Mark 7, one day some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand-washing before eating. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many traditions that they've clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of religious law asked him, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without performing the hand-washing ceremony. Jesus replied, 
you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. Then he said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God, honor your father and mother, and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father and mother must be put to death. But you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. And in this way, you let, you, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example among many others. So here's where we start today. Truth versus tradition. The Jewish religious leaders are now openly hostile to Jesus. They follow him around and they're, they're always now, at this point uh, in his ministry, following him around and looking for anything that they can criticize him about. And this is the latest one. These hand washings, by the way, that they're talking about, they have nothing to do with hygiene. It's, it's got nothing to do with that. And they weren't actually even commanded by God. It, it wasn't that either. It was... It was a a part of the tradition of the Pharisees, something that they had instituted themselves. And they began to impose these things on the people, and Jesus saw them as an unnecessary burden, something that wasn't useful, was actually bad. He actually said this in Matthew 23, 4. He said, they crush people with impossible religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. This is how he felt about some of these man-made rules that they were trying to jam down everybody's throat. The religious leaders believed that these traditions were just as important as the actual scripture. And this is where, and and this is what turned Jesus off. He, he, of course, he didn't see it that way, that your traditions don't have the same kind of authority that the word of God does, but you're jamming them down people's throats saying that they have to do this like it's a command from God and it's not a command from God. And so he goes around and, it, and, and, and I mean, I think sometimes, he, I'm almost positive sometimes he, he does stuff just to get them going. You know what I mean? Just, guys, don't, don't do the hand washing. Let's see, let's see what they say, you know? You know, like... It, I'm sure he does that stuff all the time, you know, and, and as we've been seeing it through the book of Mark, um, if you're with us or just joining us, one of the things that uh, we've talked about pretty regularly through this book is that Mark is an action book. It's, it's, uh, it's sometimes uh, the forgotten gospel of the four, but Mark is an amazing little book. It's an action book. He doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the teaching of Jesus. There's just a little bit in there. What he does talk a lot about are the actions of Jesus. He doesn't talk about the birth of Christ. He doesn't give any genealogies like Matthew does. He doesn't even even write down the Sermon on the Mount, right? Some of the great teachings of Jesus, Mark just completely, you know, just completely sidesteps, not because they're not important, but that his focus was on something else. And so his focus was not on the words of Jesus so much, but on the actions of Jesus. And the lessons that we can learn from from the actions of Jesus are just as valuable and just as important as the words that come out of his mouth. And so here you have him say, listen, you guys are creating an unnecessary burden. These traditions that you have, they're not scripture. They don't carry the same authority. Look, they're nice. We have traditions too. We have Christmas and all the things that we do around Easter and all the things you do with your family. They're wonderful things and they're nice things. And that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, is you can't let those traditions become or take the place of the word of God. It's, it's not as authoritative as what the Bible says. And so he's trying to make a point here that you're, you're, you're elevating something too high, and, and, and in, the, 
And really what's happening is when you elevate a tradition too high, in the same sense, you're, you're squishing the authority of the word of God. That's what ultimately you're doing. And so Jesus isn't pleased with this. So he gives them one example. He says, this is, this is only one example of many. And you saw, we read it. He gives the example of this law, the, the law of God says, we know, honor your, your, your parents, honor your mom and your dad. And he says, you find a way to get around it and to justify yourself doing it. And so uh, some of your Bibles might say Corban. It was, it, they would, what they would do is this. They would take a chunk of their finances or a chunk of their wealth and they would say, it is Corban or it is dedicated to the Lord. And so, it, so then their mom and dad would come and say, hey, I'm older, I need food, I need help. Can you give it to me? I know you have money, my son who loves me. I've cared for you, now you should care for me. And they would say, Sorry, Dad. Sorry, Mom. The money that I would have given you, I can't give you because I've declared it Corbin. I've, I've dedicated it to the Lord. But here's the thing about how they operated that. Most of the time when they would dedicate money or call it Corbin to the Lord, they, it, it, it didn't actually mean that they had to give it all to the temple right away. And it didn't mean that they couldn't dip into it when they needed some. And so Jesus sees through the absolute hypocrisy of saying, it's greed, it's, it's uncaring, you're not loving, you're not following the scripture. Jesus, or God says, the Father says, honor your, 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 your mother and your father, and you are, are, are using your own twisted tradition to find a way to not give them cash and to not help them when they're in need. And he sees through the incredible hypocrisy. And so he says, then this is just one thing that you do. Just one that you do. And so, again, they're trying to elevate tradition over truth. Now, the other issue Jesus has about these rules that I think is important to note is if, that they had this idea that following these rules made them holy. Following these rules was... was, was was uh, justifying them somehow before the Lord. And there was this emphasis on outward stuff instead of inward stuff. They were worried about making sure they looked good and they carried on all their outward stuff, but they weren't focused on matters of the heart. And that's what Jesus really wanted them to see. That's the next section, Mark seven fourteen. He says, Then Jesus calls the crowd to come and hear. All of you listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. Then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd, and his disciples asked him what he meant by the parable he just used. Don't you understand either, he asked. Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart but only passes through the stomach and then goes out into the sewer. By saying this, he declared every kind of food is acceptable in God's eyes. And then he added, it's what comes from inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within They are what defile you. So he's trying to make a very, very significant point that real holiness doesn't come from obeying man-made rules, right? The impurities that lie within us must be dealt with. And the only way to conquer this stuff is by having a right relationship with God. It's by... By, by finding Jesus. Jesus came to make it possible so that we could be right with God. And aren't you glad he did, right? This is why he came. And he's saying, listen, you can't allow... Thank you. We can't allow... I was wondering, I, I, I'm talking about spiritual blindness, and I was thinking if I was going blind. Yeah. Did it just get brighter? Yeah. Thank you very much. Oh, now I can see. Yeah, no. So 
We can't allow our traditions and, and, um, and this, this outward stuff, right, uh, to get in the place of really becoming right with God. You can't allow this outward stuff to make you blind to the truth that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. Our hearts are wicked, the Bible says. Our hearts are in need of a great touch from the Lord. This is what makes us, right, uh, as, as he says, this is what defiles us. We need not just to change these, these outward things on the outside and then to ignore what, all the deeper things on the inside. He's saying, listen, you need, you need change on the inside. He said, look, the food you eat, he said, it doesn't go into your heart. That's not what's defiling you. It, it, you eat it, it goes into your stomach, and then out it goes. But sin remains. It stays there. It's stuck there. And you can't get it out all on your own. And that's why Jesus came. We need God's grace. We need his strength, his love, his power. We need his forgiveness in our lives to deal with this stuff that's defiling us on the inside. Empty traditions are not going to touch what's in here, right? And, and by the way, the whole point, too, uh, which needs to be said, is this. It doesn't make our outward stuff. Some of the things we do have value, but here's the point. He's saying this, in a nutshell, is when your heart is changed, right, the outside stuff will take care of itself. That's what happens. When your heart is changed, that's when... You, you'll see change on the outside that really means something and that's true and real. So that's the point. So, uh, so, so that's, uh, that's the first point, truth versus tradition. The other thing that I wanted to uh, point out to you in this passage is that Jesus offers help for everyone. And I know that for us that seems like, wow, that's deep, Pastor. Thanks a lot for telling me that. So I, I, I get it. But you have to understand in those days, the Jews were fairly arrogant about their relationship with God. And they didn't, they, did, they didn't have the time nor the desire to do anything with, with Gentiles. They had a hard time even believing that God would love the Gentiles. In fact, even the disciples had a hard time and needed... You remember all the stories of Peter and Paul and all the struggle of what do we do with the Gentiles? And it, it, they even needed some time to adjust. But I, I wanted to show you something that doesn't, uh, doesn't maybe get uh, pointed out a lot. Jesus goes into Gentile territory. He leaves Israel and he goes into Tyre and Sidon, two known evil pagan Gentile places. In fact, Tyre is the first place he goes and uh, it, it's, it's known to be a Gentile town. It's known to be a place of wickedness. In fact, it's the hometown of Jezebel, who you may refer, you may know, is may, you know, not referred to as the nicest lady that ever lived, right? This is Gentile territory, and Jesus walks straight into it. And, and it's significant what he does. So uh, have a look at... Um, uh, or just hang on. So just before I, I show you this. So Mark mentions three miracles. There's three miracles that Jesus does when he goes into this Gentile territory. And the Jews were feeling so superior, they were blind again to the fact that Jesus might want to save Gentiles. And aren't you glad he did? Because pretty much we all are Gentiles. Unless you're Jewish, we are all Gentiles. Even the disciples needed uh, some clarity of thought and mind to this. And Jesus gives us insight into how God has help and love for everyone. And, it, and it's important that it's a part of the ministry of Jesus. And he doesn't talk about it. He, again, Mark shows what he did about it. And this is actions and what we learn from his actions. So here's the first one, Mark seven twenty four. Jesus left Galilee and went north. So here he is. He's leaving Israel now. And he goes north to the region of Tyre. So now he's in Gentile territory. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. 
Right away, a woman who had heard about him came and fell at his feet. Her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit, and she begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. Since she was a Gentile, born in Syria, Phoenicia, Jesus told her first, I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, that's true, Lord, but even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. Good answer, he said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in in bed, and the demon was gone. Now, it's it's kind of an interesting story on several fronts, and i got to keep moving, Uh, although it's only... a. That's not the right time, right? Is that the right time? Oh, yeah, okay. Is that the right time? Somebody tell me what time it is. Is it like 11? Okay, all right, okay. 11.04, I know you'll keep me right to the very minute. Thank you very much, yeah. (laughs) I'm all messed up, I don't know. (laughs) All right. He goes into this Gentile uh, town called Tyre, and This woman falls at his feet. She's seeking out Jesus, and she asks him to save her daughter from this demon. And you have to note, of course, that this lady has more spiritual insight than probably anybody in that whole area. She completely understands who Jesus is. She seems to completely understand even her place in comparison with the Jews. He wasn't insulting her by saying, I'm not going to give food to the dogs. He was, I mean, the dogs are how Jews referred to anybody who wasn't a Jew. And so he was just using words that she would understand to make the point. And clearly this woman is sharp, by the way. Like, how often does somebody use Jesus' words and turn them right back on him? Think about it. He usually does that, right? He makes this statement and says, hey, come on, I... I, 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 I can't do that. It, it was all, I mean, it's a ploy. What's he doing in the Gentile town anyway? He's there to save and help people, right? But he's like, hey, I, you know, I can't do that. I got to stay with the Jews and feed, the, you know, can't throw the food to the, to the dogs. And she says, hey, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the table. And you know when you got little kids, just look underneath. Even big kids sometimes. Yeah, just look under your table. There's stuff there, and dogs know where to go. You know dog owners. They know where to go when you're eating a meal. But anyway, so she has this great insight. She sees. Her spiritual insight is, 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 is good. She's solid. She understands who Jesus is. She understands her place in comparison to the Jews. She, she has amazing faith, and she uses Jesus' own words to even show him how much faith she has. And it's a really unique story in that way. And so here's the point. The blessing of the kingdom, the blessing that Jesus has, it's so great, it's so wonderful, and it's so available to everybody and anybody that all you need is a crumb. And miracles happen. Hmm? All she asked for was a crumb. And her daughter was saved. Even to those who seem unworthy, he is ready to give, he is ready to help, he is ready to heal, he is ready to save, he is ready to restore. It's why he left Israel and spent some time with the Gentiles to show us by his actions that he loves us and that he wants to have relationship with us. So that's one. I gotta, uh, uh, there's so, so much more. But here's, so that's the first miracle in the Gentile territory. The second one is this, about a deaf man. Jesus left Tyre, and now he goes back up to Sidon before going back to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Ten Towns. So you remember the region of the Ten Towns was, remember the demonic man who was uh, all the, the uh, It was legion, and all the demons came out of him and went into the pigs, and the pigs jumped off the cliff. And then he asked to come to Jesus. We talked about this a few weeks ago. 
And then Jesus said, no, I want you to stay here and be a witness to me. And it says that he went around the region of the ten towns telling everyone how great Jesus was and the miracles that had happened in his life. Now Jesus himself is going into the very same region. It's a Gentile place. So a deaf man with a speech impediment was brought to him. And the people begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man to heal him. Jesus led him away from the crowd so they could be alone. He put his fingers into the man's ears, and then spitting on his own fingers, he touched the man's tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Epaphtha. I hope that's correct. You try to say it, right? Which means, be opened. Instantly, the man could hear perfectly, and his tongue was freed so he could speak plainly. Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone, but the more he told them not to, the more they spread the news. They were completely amazed and said again and again, everything he does is wonderful. He even makes the deaf to hear and gives speech to those who cannot speak. I love that. Everything he does is. Isn't that nice? Everything he does is wonderful. So now the deaf man, by the way, this story is found only in Mark, this particular story. Won't find it anywhere else, only here in Mark. He takes this guy away from the crowds, and he touches the man's ears, and he touches his tongue. And I I thought, first, you can't lock God into a box because he's so creative. He does things different, and, you know, who, you know, we don't really know why, but I got thinking about why did he do it this way with this man? And I'm thinking, this guy can't hear and he can't speak. So if Jesus is talking to him, he's not going to hear anything he's saying, will he? Right? He's not going to get it. So what does Jesus do? He doesn't bother with words, he shows him action. He says, Come with me, come with me. He takes him by the hand, he takes him away from the crowd. And you could imagine, if you're the deaf man, and the Lord's got you by the hand, taking you away, isn't your faith starting to rise? Aren't you saying, maybe he can do something for me. Maybe he's going to do something for me. He takes him away, and then he touches his ears so that he understands and feels the compassion of Christ, right? He touches his tongue. Jesus communicates to this man through touching And he shows compassion and great love through his action. For the guy can't hear his words. And this is what he does. And I think he did it. I think one of the reasons is, I think it was helping to build the man's faith and to communicate to him on a greater level. And and Jesus cared about that. So he does miracles to help us, by the way, see what the kingdom of God is like. Everything Jesus does is connected to the kingdom. It, it, It... the things he does, it gives us a glimpse, a picture of, of what is yet to come, of the great things that God has in store. Isaiah prophesied about these kinds of things hundreds of years before. It says, and when he comes, talking about the, the, the Messiah, when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind, he will unplug the ears of the deaf, the lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Springs will gush forth in the wilderness and streams will water the wasteland. And here you have hundreds of years later, Jesus unplugging ears and setting, and setting free tongues that cannot speak. This is what he does. Isaiah, what Isaiah prophesied here is true. And it wasn't true just for the Jews. It was true for everyone, even the Gentiles. And Jesus shows it by the healing of this deaf and mute man. Here's the third miracle. Mark 8, put that up for me. It says, about this time, another large crowd had gathered and the people ran out of food again. He's still in Gentile territory, okay? Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. They have been here with me for three days and they have nothing left to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will faint along the way. For some of them have come a long distance. Do you see compassion again? His disciples replied, how are we supposed to feed or find enough food to feed them out here in the wilderness? Jesus asked, how much bread do you have? Seven loaves, they replied. 
So Jesus told all the people to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves. He thanked God for it, broke it into pieces. He gave them to the disciples who distributed the bread to the crowd. A, a few small fish were found too. And he, Jesus also blessed these and told the disciples to distribute them. And they ate as much as they wanted. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven large baskets of leftover food. There were about 4,000 people in the crowd that day, and Jesus sent them home after they had eaten. Immediately after this, he got into the boat with his disciples, crossed over to the region of Dalmanutha, meaning he's on his way back to Israel. Okay? So you're, you're thinking, okay, it was just last week in the previous chapter that he fed 5,000 with the little boy's lunch, right? The two loaves and the five fish. That gets more play than this story. but It does. But you've got to think, okay, why, Mark, are you including another story of Jesus feeding uh, 4,000 people instead of 5,000 people again? Uh, like, why? Why are you doing this? You just told us a story like this in the previous chapter. Why bother, right? He just fed 5,000 people back in chapter 6. Why include this one? Now, note some differences. I was thinking about it. There's fewer people, he has more bread, and there's, left, there's less food left over. But I couldn't, I couldn't, none of that seemed to be significant to me. I think, for me, the biggest difference that I saw, and I think why Mark includes it, is because this takes place with Gentiles. And the other one took place with only Jews. And so think about that. Just think about that for a second. Jesus The bread of life makes his bread available not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And then gives you a practical demonstration of that by feeding Jews and then a couple of chapters later, feeding Gentiles, right? He does the same basic miracle. He is the living bread to all, to the Gentiles too. All are invited to come. All are invited to be satisfied by him. And listen, this is still good news for us today, that even the most unlikely person is still invited to the meal. Even the most unlikely person is still invited to partake of his food. Right? Our invitation has nothing to do with our income. It has nothing to do with our age or our culture or the color of our skin. It has everything to do with the love and the overwhelming abundance that's been provided for us in Jesus Christ. This is why he offers it to all. It's an amazing story in that sense. It's the same story in some sense, but the difference is a completely different group of people who the Jews had no respect for, and Jesus walks into their midst, feeds 4,000 of them with food left over, and says, I want you to know that I'm the bread of life for you too, and I am still more than enough for you. I'm still more than enough for you. And he does it to the Gentiles too. You can come and eat the bread of life, and be satisfied. It is for you. And this is the beautiful, beautiful story. Okay, now, now he hops in the boat and he heads back to Israel. And uh, now you'll see two different kinds of blindness here, one by the enemies of Jesus and one by uh, the followers of Jesus uh, as he heads back into um, Israel. Mark chapter 8, verse 11. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had arrived, so now he's back, okay? The Pharisees aren't going to be going on the other side of the lake with the Gentiles. They're waiting on the other side. And so when they heard that Jesus had arrived back, they, they came and they started to argue with him. Yeah, like they didn't do that every day, right? Testing him, they demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his... There we see it again. And when he heard... This, he sighed deeply in his spirit, and he said, Why do these people keep demanding a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, I will not give this generation any such sign. So he got back into the boat, and he left them, and he crossed to the other side of the lake. But the disciples had forgotten to bring any food. They had only one loaf of bread with them in the boat. And as they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, Watch out, 
Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod, or the Herodians. And at this, they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought any bread. Jesus knew what they were saying, so he said, Why are you arguing about having no bread? Don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes. Can't you see? You have ears. Can't you hear? Don't you remember anything at all? When I fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread, how many leftovers did you pick up after? Twelve, they said. And when I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves, how many large baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Seven, they said. Don't you understand yet, he asked them. Do you see what's, what's, what's happening here? So get this. In Bible days, when you bake bread, you would always keep a, a piece. You'd always make sure to keep some because it had yeast in it. And you'd need that piece and you'd mix it in with the next batch and then keep that process going. So you were always able to make a new batch of bread with yeast in it. And, uh, but from time to time the yeast would get contaminated. And when they would take that piece and put it into the new dough, it would contaminate the new batch. And, uh, and then the whole thing would have to be thrown out and start, start from scratch. And, and so he's saying, listen, the Pharisees and Herod, they're not right. They're not right about how they think about God. They're not right about their man-made traditions. They're not right about demanding signs and arguing with me. They're not right. They don't have this correct. And he's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm warning you, I'm, I'm, I'm pleading with you, please, don't be influenced by these people. Don't be led astray by their legalism and their wrong beliefs. Don't get tied up into knots. These people will take you down a road that you don't want to go. Do not have anything to do with them. And he's warning them about people who are walking around proclaiming false doctrine and saying bad things about God. He didn't want them to be polluted or contaminated with the, the, the yeast of their belief. And so he uses the bread as an example, but they don't seem to they don't get it. They don't seem to understand what he's saying. So the enemies of Jesus and the friends of Jesus, they have the same problem. They're both spiritually blind. The Pharisees are blind because they just refuse to see what's right in front of them, right? They, Jesus had already done multiples of miracles, dozens of miracles right in front of their eyes, but they absolutely refused to accept him or to believe him. They were blind to the truth. But the disciples seemed to be blind as well. Who is in the boat with them? Right? They are, they're distracted by hunger. They're distracted by practical things. They're, they're, you know, who was responsible for what? Peter, didn't you, you, you were supposed to bring the bread. No, it was James. James, were you supposed to? No, man, I told Bartholomew. Bartholomew, where's the bread? And they're freaking out that they don't have the bread. And they're hungry and they're men. And you know what men are like when they're hungry. <laughs> and they're not happy. But they forgot who was in the boat. Who was in the boat? They're not thinking or remembering what they know. They're not remembering even what they just experienced. Jesus had fed over 9,000 people with next to nothing. Just wrap your brain around that. 9,000 people. 9,000 people with nothing, next to nothing. So, really? You're worried about food enough for 13 guys? You already have a, you have a loaf of bread, man. He could, he could make that bread fill up this whole boat, you know, like he's already done it twice. What are you guys thinking? Well, they're not. They're blind. And isn't it amazing? We're tough on the Pharisees for being blind. But here's the men who call themselves disciples, the closest people on the planet to the Lord Jesus himself. And they don't get it. We are hard sometimes on the religious leaders and see their hypocrisy and don't understand why they can't see. But listen, 
some, sometimes we get trapped into our own little world. Sometimes we get trapped by our own little concerns and by our own, by our, by our own concerns and by our own uh, sort of worries and anxieties and details of our lives. And, and we, we get trapped there, right? And we fail to remember who is still in the boat with us. Amen? Are we missing his peace because we're distracted about small things? I mean, okay, I'm going to give you a transparent example here. Service is almost over. I don't want you to miss what I'm saying because you're thinking about your lunch. Right? Should I go to Swiss today? I don't know. I'm feeling like breakfast. Maybe the fickle. Maybe we should go to the fickle. You know, about this time, you know, it starts to enter into your mind. Right? And all of a sudden, I'm just using it as a silly example to say, this is good stuff. And you're thinking about going to the fickle and you're going to miss it. Right? They have Jesus in the boat. They're worried about a small detail about not having enough bread or who brought the bread or who's responsible it was to bring the bread. Have you ever got yourself twisted into a knot over something not important? Not you, of course, but just, I've heard it happens. But, you know, like, th- this, is, this is what happened to them, right? Like, they have Jesus in the boat. He just fed 9,000 people with nothing. And you're worried about one loaf of bread. How insane is that? But we do it too. Who is in the boat with us? Listen, don't miss what I'm saying because you're sitting here thinking about lunch. Don't miss what God wants to say because you're focused on something that doesn't really matter. It's not that important. You're choosing to think about something that doesn't pay. It pales in comparison to the more important, right? And sometimes our brain locks into the trivial and all of a sudden it's, no, that all you, all you OCD people, oh, my Bible's crooked. Now that's going to throw you off for the rest of the service, right? You know, like, I didn't, should I leave it there? No, please don't, please don't. <laughs> okay, just for you, I'll, I'll put it straight. Just want to know. But, but, but we do it, and it happened to them. He's with us. We are temples of the Spirit of God. He lives in us. He is with us. He is in us. So listen, we lose our peace. We miss his peace Sometimes because we're distracted and worried and consumed with small things. And we, we, it gets our mind off of the bigger picture that we serve a big God and that we are children of the Most High. And He is with us in the boat. This is the big thing. We have a tendency to forget His blessings that they just saw with their own eyes what He'd done and just, just seen what he had done. You walk into church and you feel his presence and you receive his word and five minutes out the door, what happens? We lose his peace and we lose his presence. We forget his blessings. He meets our needs. He helps us. He shows that he's willing to help anybody, man, man, women, boy, girl, red, yellow, black, and white. He's willing to give us and help us and to provide, to, to, to welcome us into his family, to make us children of God, to love us and to help us, to give us a home in heaven and to help us with, with blessing here and strength and wisdom to get through all the challenges of life. He promises that to us. And we know that's true. And why then, when he's promised to do all this, when a need arises, we get filled with fear. We get filled with worry and anxiety. And we forget that he's still in the boat with us. He's still with us. He is here with us just as he was there that day in the boat. Just as much. So listen, 
This, I've pulled this out just to help you remember. Psalm 103, put it up for me. Let all that I am praise the Lord with my whole heart. I will praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never, may I never, may I never forget the good things he does for me. He forgives my sins. He heals my diseases. He redeems me from death. He crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things so my youth is renewed like the eagle. That is our God. And this is what He does. He is in the boat with us. So there's two kinds of blindness going on here. The Pharisees who completely reject Him who refuse to see anything that he does, and yet people who love him dearly, who, who are committed to him, who listen to him, who live with him, who, who, who just are, are, are wanting to hear every... I mean, they were, they were so deeply privileged to walk with Jesus, and yet they were blind to so many things. So for us today, let's not forget. Let's not forget the good things that he has done. For he is still in the boat with us. Okay, one more and then we're done and I promise. Last, last end here. Mark 8, 22 to 26. One last little thing, little story. That he finishes off after they've been arguing about the bread in the boat. When they arrived, they were on their way, right? So now when they, they land and they arrive at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus, and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Then spitting on the, ground, on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, can you see anything now? And the man looked around. Yes, he said, I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were opened, and his sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. Jesus sent him away saying, don't go back into the village on your way home. Now, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll stop here, and we'll uh, continue next week, but the unique thing here is that this man is healed in two stages, right? It's It's... It's really one of the rare times you see that. Jesus puts his hands on people and they're healed. You know, he says the demon is gone and the demon is gone. This is something that's unique. His healing is in two stages. We're not told why the guy is healed gradually rather than all at once. He doesn't fully explain it. Uh, You can read, which I did again this week, and people will have different ideas about why that happened. Some people say maybe the man's faith needed to be strengthened before the full healing would come. Maybe that area in, in Bethsaida was, was, a, was a, a, a deeply unbelieving area and it was hindering the Lord somehow. People have various, you know, it's just theories. But I have one of my own. And you want to hear it, right? This is what I think. I think that it's not a mistake that the healing, a gradual healing of a blind man happens right after the Pharisees and the disciples both show that they're spiritually blind. Mark tucks it in there right, right, right there. And I got to think that it's not random that that happened when they landed on the shore that a blind man approaches them. I had the thought that this story follows the blindness of the Pharisees and the blindness of the disciples for a reason. That at the very least, it's got, we know this, it, that it should encourage us to know that Jesus wants us to have full sight. That he, he, he wants us to have full spiritual sight. So, he prays for the man. The man by the way, the, clearly because of how he reacted, he wasn't born blind. Because remember, he says, oh, I, I see uh, people or trees or, what did he say? Trees that look like people or people that look like trees? Yeah, people that look like trees. So he, it, it sounds like he had some semblance of sight in his past, but had gone blind as he aged. 
And, and so he's seeing, and he's like, yeah, that's, I see something, but it's not right, you know. Um, uh, so, so Jesus prays for him again. And I had this thought that it should encourage us to know that Jesus wants us to have full spiritual sight, that many of us are walking around with cloudy vision. Many of us are not seeing things as clearly as we should. Many of us are missing things. We're, we're seeing the hand of God. We're seeing things in our world and in our lives, but, we're, but we just don't see it quite right. People looking like trees. I'm, I'm, I'm just missing a little bit of, of what he's trying to show me, what he's trying to tell me, what, it, what he's trying to impress upon me. I'm seeing something, but I just can't see it clear. And, and it should encourage us to know that Jesus wants us to have full vision and we're walking around with cloudy vision, maybe not seeing as clearly as we should. We're making mistakes. We're, we're misreading things that are coming. And, and Jesus didn't leave this man with impaired vision, right? He, he wanted him to see clearly. And I think he wants the same for us. That the more we surrender to him, the more clarity he gives. And even when we can't understand, when we get worried, when we get afraid, when when things seem to not be going our way, he wants us to see clearly that he is still in the boat with us. That he doesn't want you left walking around seeing things that aren't there. He doesn't want to leave you seeing things cloudy or being misrepresented or saying, I see, I see something, but I don't know what it means. Jesus says, then come again, come again. You need more prayer. We, we got to get this vision clear. And I think at the, at the very least, it shows us something that he wants us to see clearly. Even when we can't understand, he still wants us to see clearly. Oh, you can't, you know, we say, like Jordan said last week, when you, you, when you can't trace his hand, you've still got to trust his heart, right? And, and there's, there's times when you don't know what's around the corner. You don't know what tomorrow may bring, but you know who holds tomorrow, amen? And you know who are, whose hand you're sitting in. And this is what he wants you to see. So details may not, I'm not talking about that, but I think the point is he's saying, listen, guys, listen, listen, listen. Don't be polluted or contaminated by the bad vision and the bad theology and the bad doctrine of the Pharisees. I am with you. I am here with you. I have done everything that you need. I am more than enough. Open your eyes and let me show you how wonderful I really am. Ah, everything he does is wonderful. It's what he is and what he does. And so he's saying, listen, I'm not going to leave you partially sighted. I want you to see clearly and even, and especially at the times when you're not sure. That's when he wants you to see him clearly and to trust him more deeply. The servant king has come to bring sight. And this sight is offered to everyone. The servant king brings sight.